What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, in my arms, why don't you stay? I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to talk about, uh, you know, we, we talked about space travel quite a bit in this show, obviously. We've got lots of different episodes. We've talked about things like colonization or, you know, just even initial plans to send some intrepid adventurers off to Mars and, and what that mm-hmm. would mean. Uh, one of the things that we haven't really talked about is this idea of if we are going to eventually grow beyond our planet and colonize other places, uh, presumably, unless we find some magic way of traveling, getting from Earth to some other habitable place could take a very long time. Like multiple generations of people. Right. And unless we have some way of freezing everybody that's actually going to work and not kill them, that means people are going to be living out their lives on some form of spacecraft on their way to a destination. And if you're going to have a generational thing happen, 
that means eventually people are going to be hooking up and having babies. We're talking about making new humans. That's right. So space babies. Space and babies. Not like the 2001 Space Odyssey space I baby. I think it's exactly like the 2001 space. No, no, it's not. I don't think you first get an obelisk. Um, <laughs> no, well, we should clarify at the beginning. So are we aware that humans have ever been in space in a family way? The official statement is that uh, NASA uh, stresses that that astronauts maintain a certain level of professionalism. Right. So in other words, the official comment is there's nothing to comment on. Uh, there's been a lot of um, conjecture, but no direct evidence. There, there was a hoax document going around the Internet a while back about uh, NASA testing sex in space, and I think that was uh, debunked. Was it was it? I, I am actually unaware of this. Was it done in a very straightforward way or was it actually uh, done kind of like a spoof? Was there any kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of thing going on? I don't on? know. I haven't read the document myself. Okay. I just read about it. I it, see. It was circulating on the Internet a long time ago. and uh, But I think it was a, a little hoax. Somebody was having a bit of fun. Um, yeah, as far as we know, there's no real way to prove whether or not anybody's actually had sexual intercourse in space. We think probably not. Um, but we definitely know that nobody's been pregnant in space right. or has had a baby in space. Right. right. Yes. And so here's the thing is that this is such uh, a complicated topic that we're going to be tackling that we're actually going to use, uh, you know, two episodes to really cover it because there are, there are lots of different factors you have to take into consideration when it comes to the idea of, of, uh, of babies and space in, multiple contexts, right? So we want to kind of split this up so we can really handle both uh, major categories thoroughly. Oh, right. Sure. And I think a good indication of how complex and kind of weird and squidgy it gets um, is is that I can't actually recall any kind of science fiction stories that deal with birth, with, with reproduction in space in general. Right. And, and this, this might be just due to the overall sexism of the industry that's more interested in dudes <laughs> than it is in ladies, um, and having more dude characters than lady characters. Um, but I mean, you know, like I, I recall maybe in something like Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, there being mention of women having some babies at some point, which is important because it's a moon colony. Right, right. Um, but, but I, I mean, other than like Prometheus, I don't recall anyone ever being pregnant in a science fiction movie. Well, I think unless in, you count alien in general. Well, <laughs> <laughs> sure. In uh, in whatever science fiction does deal with it, I feel like it's often just taken for granted. Like, oh, but, we figured this out. This is well, taken care of. Often in those same science fiction elements, they've solved a lot of the problems that we're going to be talking about in these upcoming episodes. Right, they're all walking around on their spacecraft anyway. Right, and, and there's like never that. any indication that there's harmful radiation that they have to worry about. So th- those are those are actual real problems. That we have to consider. And here's the thing is that these are things we do have to consider and being able to figure out these these problems before they manifest in real world tragedy is difficult because how do you create a scientific test for stuff that is ethical? I mean, these are this is tough, tough topic, you know? Yeah, of course, it's not ethical to just like send some pregnant women up there and see what happens. Right. Or even to fertilize an egg. I mean, there's there are ethical questions with that too. Also, just the the research hasn't really gotten far far along enough yet for for humans to even be a consideration. We've I mean, because we've had some some pregnant mammals in space. By mammals, I mean like rats and mice. Right. Um, 
but uh, but I don't think that, uh, according to what we read, we haven't seen any any evidence of there being conception by mammals in space or of uh, birth. Birth. Yeah. So, so so we've got you know, you know sending up an animal that is carrying uh, a fetus into space is one thing, and I mean that obviously we would need to know about that as well. But if you're talking about colonization, I mean, every single uh, part of going from a planet with Earth-like gravity out into space and then traveling some distance for some time in space and then perhaps even landing on another planet, all of these things would play factors into any kind of development. So uh, there's lots of stuff we just don't know. Now, what we do know is that we've got we're, we're looking mainly at two main um, categories of issues that we need to gather more information about in order to start coming up with solutions to uh, head off any potential problems. And in this episode, we're specifically going to look at radiation. Oh, yeah. It would seem that radiation and pregnancy don't mix well. Not, not in general. Now, we should say that on Earth, all of us experience radiation. We're always... Ambient, uh-huh. constant yeah. radiation. And depending upon the kind of stuff that is around you, you might get a little bit more of a dose than someone else. So, for example, if you happen to work in the United States Capitol building, you're getting a little more radiation than someone who's living in a wooden house. And that's because the granite that actually makes up the Capitol building has trace amounts of uranium in it. Not enough for it to actually be a danger, but enough of it to have a higher background radiation than some other place that might not have as much uranium around it. Okay, so the average person, uh, just from natural exposure to the world around him or her, gets about 310 millirem of radiation annually. So uh, it, now we have to say what a millirem is. So rem stands for orontgen equivalent in man. And it's really a, a measure of how much radiation gets uh, absorbed by a biological entity and how that affects that biological entity. Okay, so uh, it's not just the raw energy, but it's sort of the effect. on Yeah, the right. Yeah, and, exactly. and this kind of thing gets gets mixed up in the media pretty often because there's actually three different measuring systems for radiation. You, you've got how much a material em- emits that's measured in Curie's or um, uh, Becquerel, how much radiation energy will be absorbed by any given mass, which is measured in a um, raid or gray. And then this this REM that we're talking about, which can also be measured in um, millisieverts. Sieverts, yeah, that right. would be the sieverts. Sieverts would be the main one. REM is the main one. Millisieverts is usually what we talk about because that's it's in the millisievert range, usually for the actual amount of radiation that the average person encounters, uh, you know, in it's a little bit like it's a, I think it's a hundred to one millirem to millisieverts. So it's 310 millirems being the average that a person would encounter in a, on earth ends up being 3.1 millisieverts. So that's how it, it it's nice that it, it uh, is easy to figure that out because you don't have to divide by like one eighth or something. Right. It's, it's all basically metric based. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of, yeah. Yes. Units. Exactly. It makes it, so much easier than having to convert inches to centimeters or, or Fahrenheit to centigrade or something along those <laughs> lines. So essentially what you're using this for is to kind of determine uh, how much is are you how much radiation are you encountering and at what point should you start to really be worried? Now, the 
International Commission of Radiological Protection recommends that people limit exposure to artificial sources of radiation, meaning man-made sources of radiation. Like additional above this 310. Exactly, to 100 millirem per year. But according to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission of the United States, we tend to get about 310 millirem per year. So uh, we get, essentially we double the amount of millirem radiation that we're receiving on a yearly basis. However, a lot of that comes from radioactive clown attacks. Just to just be, so yeah, scientific if you can avoid Some of it those. comes from things like glowing watch faces. Yeah, you know, I'm not even joking with that. That really is a a, a source of radiation. Very minor source of radiation. We're not talking something that's going to, you know, you put the watch on and then all the fish in your nearby river have three eyes and they all turn into blinky. But (laughs) so the other thing to remember is that, uh, you know, harmful doses of this tend to be pretty high. We're talking higher than 10 rem and a a milli rem is one one thousandth of a rem. So you aren't even approaching one rem even with this background radiation and the typical radiation you would encounter from artificial sources. You're not getting close to that. And, you know, we're also talking about over the the span of a year, not in one Single encounter. Hit. Right. Yeah. So uh, generally speaking, the amount of radiation we encounter here on Earth tends to be pretty manageable. Also, we've evolved to handle radiation. Our cells repair it themselves uh, after being damaged by radiation. So uh, as long as you're not exposing yourself to too much for your body to handle, you tend to be all right. It, this this is dangerous radiation in the sense that it is ionizing. So too much exposure could in- create some damage on a deeper level, like we're talking DNA level damage. But generally speaking, you're not going to be in too much trouble uh, in your typical day-to-day experience. Some people, like medical professionals who might have to work with things like uh, CAT scan machines or x-ray machines, might have higher doses than others and therefore could run some risks. But, you know, like I say, the typical experience is pretty, it's pretty nominal. Okay, but let's talk about pregnancy specifically. Okay. what What's the relationship, the known relationship between... Um, radiation and health effects on a a fetus or a pregnant mother? Well, in general, uh, embryos tend to be pretty resilient to radiation. So at least here on Earth. Right. We're talking about the kind of radiation we normally encounter. Yes, here on Earth. We'll make a distinction in a minute. Sure. Uh, Right. The precise numbers are in some amount of dispute. Yeah. Uh, I think I think you found ones that were a little bit lower than than the overall range that I saw. Well, specifically, the the Health Physics Society were they the numbers they were citing were things like around uh, twenty rem. It, you would have to be in excess of twenty rem to have danger to an embryo. Um, so if you're talking about that, that's twenty thousand millirem or uh, two hundred millisievert, if you prefer that uh, that metric. And that's a lot. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, so, that's plenty. Um, I, I saw numbers from the CDC that they gave a range rather than that kind of solid number of, right. of more like 5 to 50 rem. Um, so that's 5,000 to 500 to, to 50,000. I'm right. sorry, I'm really bad at math. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, millirem. But and, and with different ranges as the embryo progresses through different stages of development sure. um, of, you know, the possibilities of, of failure of the embryo to implant during the first couple of weeks would be the main danger that you're looking at um, right. for, for the next month and a half. There's, you know, 
possibilities of, of malformations during organ development or something like that. And then uh, moving on to the first trimester, like potential for, for growth problems or brain or nerve damage. Right. Um, however, once you get out of that first trimester development, the fetus and the mother are going to go through basically the same kind of danger processes from radiation. Right. So in other words, the, the baby, the fetus and the mother are both uh, equally resilient to radiation. Right. So is it that the main danger, sort of the pronounced risk of uh, radiation is more weighted towards the beginning of the pregnancy? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And again, it's one of those where it has to be a significant amount of radiation for it to, to hit what is considered to be uh, a danger. Keeping in mind that these are all based probabilistically, right? These are all based upon uh, statistically being dangerous. So there are times when lower doses of radiation could result in problems down the line. But, you know, you're looking across vast populations and big studies. These are these are the trends that you see. So. Absolutely. Okay, so what kind of radiation dangers are we actually looking at from being in space? Well, they are a little different. You know, yeah. the ones that we encounter here on Earth, besides the background radiation, might be things like uh, X-rays or maybe occasionally gamma rays. But if you're going out into space, you've got some uh, some other types to worry about. There are charged particles that are trapped in the magnetic field around Earth, so around the ionosphere, that can contain quite a bit of energy. Those, those you would not normally encounter. The ionosphere, as it turns out, pretty far away from the surface of the Earth because <laughs> uh, you've got the stratosphere and the troposphere and the mesosphere in between the ionosphere and Earth. So we don't tend to encounter those charged particles very often unless we happen to be astronauts. Uh, there's also particles that come from solar eruptions. So occasionally uh, there you might have a solar flare and a coronal mass ejection from the sun that can end up shooting out these particles that are incredibly energetic. Those have the potential to do some damage. And then you have cosmic rays. I think this is the big one. Yeah, these could be heavy ions. I mean, much heavier than what you would encounter on Earth as far as an ion's concerned. And these can carry massive amounts of energy. They can travel at near the speed of light. They can pass right through matter. So they're very difficult to shield against unless you have some sort of magnetic deflection shield because uh, they are affected by magnetic forces. In fact, if you happen to ha- be in space during a time where the sun is really active, you might have more uh, particles to worry about from the sun but you'll probably going to have fewer cosmic rays interacting with you because the sun will actually deflect those rays from its own magnetic forces. But, you know, we know that once you go out into space far enough, you are no longer within that protective magnetic field that the Earth has. In fact, it's a field that is really important to life here on Earth, and it's one that we've commented on that Mars does not have. So that's another issue is that, you know, Mars would not have the protection that Earth has in this case. Uh, Or or even something in Earth's low orbit, like the ISS, is definitely within the magnetosphere. Yeah. So, you know, that definitely gets some protection there, too. If you're talking about deep space travel, then you suddenly don't have that protection. Yeah. Um, You you know, these are these are the kinds of, of particles moving at incredible speeds, incredible energy that could do huge amounts of damage on a tiny molecular level. Uh, in in uh, biological creatures, including messing up the DNA of cells and causing mutations that our cells might not be able to recover from. Uh, right. And it's a really significant amount of, of radiation that you could receive on, on one of these 
deep space sort of trips. Uh, okay, not that Mars is really deep space, but that's the one that people have made out estimates for, especially when people started talking about um, doing that ridiculous Mars One yeah, uh, thing or something that we, like that. They were still very skeptical about. Sure. Uh, but, you know, for, for a 180-day ideally timed Earth to Mars trip, the estimate is that you would be exposed to some um, 33 rem. Yeah, that's... That's big. Which is which is a bunch. Um, yeah. Several space agencies have actually set a limit of how much radiation from all this kind of stuff it's it's recommended for an astronaut to receive over the course of their lifetime without unacceptable health risk, and that's about 100 rem. And keep in mind, of course, we're talking about 100 rem over the lifetime of an astronaut. Now, granted, uh, 100 rem over the probably the the career lifetime of an right. astronaut. Uh, still, that's that's a lot of radiation. Um, yeah, so. Here's here's some questions like what would this radiation have what what effect would it have upon someone who is pregnant and really the answer ultimately is we don't know for sure because we right. can't we it haven't been able to test it would not be ethical to test that right mm-hmm. uh, we, we have suspect some it would be ideas. really bad yeah, yeah. Uh, so one idea, of course, is that it would just result in, say, like embryo mortality or, or birth defects. Right. Uh, the, the other idea is that it would result in uh, various kinds of sterilization. So if you have a, uh, a male and a female, say, traveling and they decide, well, we're in the middle of a space journey, we want to get pregnant now um, – they might have trouble with that because the radiation might affect the male sperm to begin with. Uh, there's also been the suggestion that I read in several articles um, that it would be likely to sterilize a female embryo so that, say, a, a, a female child conceived in space during the space journey right. would have her eggs sterilized so that she couldn't oh, have wow. children down the so road. So you'd be limited to just the one generation. Okay, well, we could think about this question in sort of the, the really long term, the space colonization term, like we've been talking about. But sooner in the future, I think this is going to come up in the context which we originally mentioned it in one of our videos, which is that um, are people going to be able to conceive children as space tourists, say, within the next few decades? I mean, if you want to travel up to a, you know, a, a private space station or an orbiting spacecraft or something like that, would it be safe to conceive a child there or for a pregnant woman to make that journey? Uh, and I, one of the big questions there is how much exposure is too much? Like, is it going to be where just a few days up there is enough to be a serious risk or uh, or would it need to be really prolonged exposure? And those are some of the most serious questions right now, I think. And, and we certainly can't answer those either. And also, those questions are highly dependent upon conditions in space at any given time. So, for example, uh, you know, we are not really good at predicting solar events, right? We, we're just not good at predicting when a solar flare or coronal mass ejection will happen. We're better at being able to at least detect and then predict cosmic radiation, which is why it hasn't been as huge a problem right now, because again, we've got a lot of people who are at least somewhat protected by a magnetic field. And also we get a little more advanced warning. We can maneuver so that we decrease the chances of any kind of uh, interaction with cosmic radiation, but we're not as good at the solar radiation. So it sort of depends upon what's going on 
out there already Mm -hmm. because it's not like we can just point to a figure and say, this is how much radiation is out there in space all the time, always, because there is no such number. It all depends on lots of other variables. There is, however, a an, an experiment underway to uh, examine one aspect of these effects. Some some researchers working with the Japan Area Space Exploration Agency brought freeze-dried mouse sperm to the ISS in August of 2013. Um, these samples are going to hang out there for, for three different periods of time and then be brought back to Earth for micro-insemination. And that's when you uh, uh, inject a sperm directly into an egg. Um, and, and the goal here is to figure out the effect of that long-term or relatively long-term several periods of, of months radiation on fertility rates, on DNA damage, on uh, growth and birth rates of those fetuses. So, yeah, so this is going to be sort of that first step into learning what these – these uh what the consequences could be. Uh, obviously, I mean, first step on a very long journey for us to figure this out. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's interesting that you bring that up about the idea that space tourism is something that could conceivably, for, forgive the pun, <laughs> forgive oh, the pun, no. oh, conceivably no. happen within uh, a couple of years to mm-hmm. maybe a decade, depending upon how long it takes to to build out the, the infrastructure, especially if we're talking about something like an extended stay aboard a, a private space station, that's going to take some time. But it's something that could happen within our lifetimes. Uh, I'm not sure that the research that is necessary to make sure that everything is, is safe and finding the best practices for things like conceiving a baby in space are going to be around at that same time. We're going to see mm-hmm. our ability to do something uh, come across faster than our understanding of what all the consequences are, which is always kind of terrifying, right? I mean, yeah. in, in any respect. But when you're talking about human lives, obviously the 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 scale is much larger than you know other uh, other instances of not really being sure what the stuff you made is going to do. Okay, well, so we've established we don't really know what the effects are, but the risks are there. Yes, and we should be we should be cautious, yes. basically about. Crossing uh, pregnancy or conception and space. Um, so, what can we do to offset these risks? Because, I mean, in the long term, we're probably going to be facing colonization efforts. In the short term, we know that somebody is probably going to want to try this. Sure. So, what can we do to make it safer? Well, I mean, some some things you can do like build better shielding for spacecraft for certain types of radiation other types of radiation tend to pass through matter like it's nothing so yeah so there so like the ISS just has pretty plain like plate shielding right mm-hmm. uh yeah with better Metals. better better uh, shielding around um sleep quarters and places where right. the crew spends more time than uh you know they in other words, there are certain areas of the of the ISS that have better shielding than others. Uh, yeah, there, but there is also this question about whether, say, metallic shielding, like sheets of aluminum, actually also create a risk of their own from secondary radiation. Right? Where you have mm-hmm. an ionizing uh, a particle hitting the that and then transferring that energy to the shielding, which could then become a source of danger. Yeah. So how might we get around that? Uh, I've got one idea. Well, it's not really my idea. I read about one idea. Yeah. Which is using uh, food and water and poop and pee as a shield. Sounds we- legit. Uh, turns out substances like these actually provide better shielding than metal because something like water 
uh, is is very dense in terms of nuclei, so it's got more atomic nuclei in a smaller area. And apparently, this is better at deflecting those cosmic rays we were talking about, which just I I, I get the impression they just go through metal like butter. Like yeah, yeah. But I've heard that I've heard that bonded hydrogen is actually about the best that we figured out for yeah, for yeah. that kind of stuff. Actually, it is much more effective than a lot of the other shieldings that we've come up with. Yeah, so uh so this idea is just basically you surround your spacecraft capsule with organic with, matter. With organic matter with with places where you can put water or pee or hu- human excrement in yeah. general. All uh, all your storage capacity just in a skin around the ship. Mm-hmm. So if I said that your spacecraft shield was total crap, that would actually be a, a yeah. compliment. Yeah, it okay. would be a better than made of some metals or I maybe that, all metals. I think that language is in, is evolving right here. Yeah, I'm so proud. Yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, this this came. It was suggested by somebody named uh, Tabor McCallum in uh, an interview with New Scientist in 2013, talking about the Mars inspiration. Uh, I'll call that the Mars inspiration idea. Uh, I yeah. probably won't say mission. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Not quite yet, no. But <clears throat> it seems to be a a reasonable suggestion to make. Well, yeah, on the face of it, at least, it seems like, uh, you know, obviously we'd need some testing to make sure that it was working. But we do yeah. know that hydrogen, you know, that hydrogen serves as a really good shielding mechanism. Right. So, and it, yeah, it doesn't have to be just water either. You could use a, a hydrogen-based rocket fuel yeah. as huh. a uh, as a shield. The problem would be, as you use it, you'd be depleting your shield. Sure. sure. So another uh, option in the future, it's one that is not really tested right now, is that you have an active shield, like a force field. Uh, this is, I think, this idea. Basically, the status right now is it would probably work better than any kind of Physical passive shielding, shielding but it seems not feasible at the moment to make a system like this, or at least not safe and feasible at the right, same time. because you're so, talking about creating some sort of electromagnetic field around right, it, the ship. Right, it'd be like an electrostatic field or a magnetic field. It would be you'd be using energy to create a force that would repel the cosmic rays coming in. Now... Arguably, you could do this in such a way where you only used it whenever you know any any oncoming threat was detected. So that way, in <laughs> How other would words, you detect it. Well, we we can predict when cosmic radiation is coming toward the Earth. I mean, if you're using if you're using those abilities to detect anything that's coming toward you, and then can activate the shield in time to uh, deflect it, then you wouldn't have quite as much of a drain on your resources. But it's still an energy suck. I mean, you've mm-hmm. got to find a way to replenish that energy. Um, you know, you have to be able to take in more energy than you need to use, knowing that you're going to lose some in the form of heat, no matter what you're doing. So, yeah, it's I mean, that's a you know, it's it's one of those things that we see in science fiction all the time with force fields. This would be a type of force field. But, you know, the question remains, where do you get the energy to to create that force field? Yeah, I think I, I also read just a little bit about how this creating fields like this might create risks for the astronauts aboard. So you mm-hmm. might be repelling cosmic rays but like bombarding the interior with electrons from this field or something or even if it was just a just a simple electromagnetic field that's still an electromagnetic field you've got a lot of instrumentation on there that could easily mm-hmm. be affected by an electromagnetic field and you know they're they're just practical considerations that even if we were able to create this right now we would say oh well 
didn't think about the hammer sticking to the wall like that, you know, or worse. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, so there, well, there's the other option, which is just avoid space. Yeah. Uh, which is not to say that you can never, uh, have children beyond earth. It's just that you'd have to find a place to do it that was safe. Problem is, where's that going to be? I mean, the surface of Mars is not even as safe as the surface of Earth. Right. It lacks it lacks the the magnetosphere. It the also, atmosphere. Atmosphere is not. Also, the soil is trying to kill you. Everything on Mars is trying to kill you, mm-hmm. except the, possibly the rover. It might not try to kill. It you. It looks pretty friendly, yeah. but I think it wouldn't care if it did. No, it, it, it's it's kind of the the sociopath of space exploration. True neutral. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, the moon, the moon isn't that good for that kind of thing either. <laughs> B- basically, we haven't found another planet or moon or rocky body out in the big wide universe that is going to treat us as well as Earth does. Right. So the bottom line, I think, right now is in terms of radiation, we don't have an option that's 100 percent safe. Right. For for outside Earth uh, uh Childbearing. Now, the hope is that by the time we reach a point where colonization is something we can legitimately consider, as in we've we've advanced to the point where we are are reasonably confident that we can make a go of it, whether it's on another body within our solar system or it's a long term plan that by then we will have solved some of these problems in ways that we possibly can't imagine right now. I mean, there's there are developments that happen in science that are unexpected they they happen occasionally where you know you don't you don't anticipate it and it changes everything so there's the possibility that that could happen but as it stands right now it's one of those difficult problems that scientists are looking to to tackle and they're looking to tackle it in ways that don't have these ethical considerations that we'd have to worry about uh, yeah we we don't even understand what all the problems are yet is what we're saying yeah, let yeah. alone how to solve them yeah compound that with the fact that there's one big other concern about childbearing in yeah, space. It's and a pretty heavy We're going to talk about that. Oh, no. We're going to talk about the effects of microgravity in our next podcast. Yeah. In part well, two. Uh, microgravity and hypergravity. Oh, right. Because ah, you yeah. have to sometimes some of that. you give birth on Jupiter. Yep. Yep. Sometimes you do. Man, it's a tough day. What, what, what colloquial you are we talking about here? Jonathan oh. Strickland oh, himself. Okay. Sometimes, sometimes gives I give birth, birth on, on Jupiter. Jupiter. Look. We all have our hobbies. All right, guys, that wraps up this episode of Forward Thinking. In our next episode, we will continue this discussion by looking at the effects of gravity and what we've learned so far about how gravity may or may not influence things like, well, the development of an embryo, uh, how viable is uh, our live offspring that have been conceived in, in microgravity. I mean... These are, are tricky questions, again, because we have so little information. But there have been some experiments on, in this field. So we're going to talk about that in our next episode. Meanwhile, you guys should definitely go to fwthinking.com. That's the website where we've got all the podcasts, blog posts, videos, and other information about the future and all the kind of stuff we talk about and we're really excited about. You should come and join that. Be part of our family. And join in on the conversation, too. <laughs> You can go over to Twitter, Facebook, or Google Plus and find us there. FW Thinking is our handle. Let us know what you think about the future. What has you excited? Come on and tell us, guys. We're waiting to hear from you, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com.
Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.